Section 15 of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume 1, by Charles Francis Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 15, The Letters, 1780-1781. 12 January, 1780, to John Quincy Adams. My dear son, I hope you have had no occasion, either from enemies or the dangers of the sea, to repent your second voyage to France. If I had thought your reluctance arose from proper deliberation, or that you were capable of judging what was most for your own benefit, I should not have urged you to accompany your father and brother when you appeared so adverse to the voyage. You, however, readily submitted to my advice, and I hope will never have occasion yourself, nor give me reason, to lament it. Your knowledge of the language must give you greater advantages now than you could possibly have reaped whilst ignorant of it, and as you increase in years, you will find your understanding, opening, and daily improving. Some author that I have met with compares a judicious traveller to a river that increases its stream the further it flows from its source, or to certain springs which, running through rich veins of minerals, improve their qualities as they pass along. It will be expected of you, my son, that, as you are favored with superior advantages under the instructive eye of a tender parent, your improvement should bear some proportion to your advantages. Nothing is wanting with you but attention, diligence, and steady application." nature has not been deficient. These are times in which a genius would wish to live. It is not in the still calm of life, or the repose of a pacific station, that great characters are formed. Would Cicero have shown so distinguished an orator, if he had not been roused, kindled, and inflamed by the tyranny of Catiline, Verus, and Mark Anthony? the habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties. All history will convince you of this, and that wisdom and penetration are the fruit of experience, not the lessons of retirement and leisure. Great necessities call out great virtues. When a mind is raised and animated by scenes that engage the heart, then those qualities which would otherwise lie dormant wake into life and form the character of the hero and the statesman war tyranny and desolation are the scourges of the almighty and ought no doubt to be deprecated yet it is your lot my son to be an eye-witness of these calamities in your own native land and at the same time to owe your existence among a people who have made a glorious defense of their invaded liberties and who, aided by a generous and powerful ally, with the blessing of heaven, will transmit this inheritance to ages yet unborn. Nor ought it to be one of the least of your incitements towards exerting every power and faculty of your mind, that you have a parent who has taken so large and active a share in this contest, and discharged the trust reposed in him, with so much satisfaction as to be honored with the important embassy which at present calls him abroad. The strict and inviolable regard you have ever paid to truth 
gives me pleasing hopes that you will not swerve from her dictates, but add justice, fortitude, and every manly virtue which can adorn a good citizen, do honor to your country, and render your parents supremely happy, particularly your ever-affectionate mother, A.A. A. 20 March, 1780, to John Quincy Adams. My dear son, your letter, last evening received from Bill Bowell, relieved me from much anxiety, for, having a day or two before, received letters from your papa, Mr. Thaxter, and brother, in which packet I found none from you, nor any mention made of you, my mind, ever fruitful in conjectures, was instantly alarmed. I feared you were sick, unable to write, and your papa, unwilling to give me uneasiness, had concealed it from me. And this apprehension was confirmed by every person's omitting to say how long they should continue in Bilbao. Your father's letters came to Salem, yours to Newburyport, and soon gave ease to my anxiety, at the same time that it excited gratitude and thankfulness to heaven for the preservation you all experienced in the imminent dangers which threatened you. You express in both your letters a degree of thankfulness. I hope it amounts to more than words, and that you will never be insensible to the particular preservation you have experienced in both your voyages. You have seen how inadequate the aid of man would have been if the winds and the seas had not been under the particular government of that being who stretched out the heavens as a span, who holdeth the ocean in the hollow of his hand, and rideth upon the wings of the wind. If you have a due sense of your preservation, your next consideration will be for what purpose you are continued in life. It is not to row from clime to clime, to gratify an idle curiosity, but every new mercy you receive is a new debt upon you, a new obligation to a diligent discharge of the various relations in which you stand connected, in the first place to your great preserver, in the next to society in general, in particular to your country, to your parents, and to yourself. The only sure and permanent foundation of virtue is religion. Let this important truth be engraven upon your heart, and also that the foundation of religion is the belief of the one only God, and a just sense of his attributes, as a being infinitely wise, just, and good, to whom you owe the highest reverence, gratitude, and adoration, who superintends and governs all nature, even to clothing the lilies of the field, and hearing the young ravens when they cry, but more particularly regards man, whom he created after his own image, and breathed into him an immortal spirit, capable of a happiness beyond the grave, for the attainment of which he is bound to the performance of certain duties, which all tend to the happiness and welfare of society, and are comprised in one short sentence expressive of universal benevolence, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is elegantly defined by Mr. Pope in his essay on man. Remember, man, 
the universal cause acts not by partial, but by general laws, and makes what happiness we justly call subsist not in the good of one, but all. There's not a blessing individuals find, but some way leans and hearkens to the kind. Thus has the supreme being made the goodwill of man towards his fellow creatures an evidence of his regard to him, and for this purpose has constituted him a dependent being, and made his happiness to consist in society. Man early discovered this propensity of his nature, and found Eden was tasteless till an eve was there. Justice, humanity, and benevolence are the duties you owe to society in general. To your country the same duties are incumbent upon you, with the additional obligation of sacrificing ease, pleasure, wealth, and life itself for its defense and security. To your parents you owe love, reverence, and obedience to all just and equitable commands. To yourself, here indeed is a wide field to expiate upon. To become what you ought to be, and what a fond mother wishes to see you, attend to some precepts and instructions from the pen of one who can have no motive but your welfare and happiness, and who wishes in this way to supply to you the personal watchfulness and care which a separation from you deprived you of at a period of life when habits are easiest acquired and fixed. And though the advice may not be new, yet suffer it to obtain a place in your memory, for occasions may offer, and perhaps some concurring circumstances unite, to give it weight and force. Suffer me to recommend to you one of the most useful lessons of life, the knowledge and study of yourself. There you run the greatest hazard of being deceived. Self-love and partiality cast a mist before the eyes, and there is no knowledge so hard to be acquired, nor of more benefit when once thoroughly understood. Ungoverned passions have aptly been compared to the boisterous ocean, which is known to produce the most terrible effects. Passions are the elements of life, but elements which are subject to the control of reason. Whoever will candidly examine themselves will find some degree of passion, peevishness, or obstinacy in their natural tempers. You will seldom find these disagreeable ingredients all united in one, but the uncontrolled indulgence of either is sufficient to render the possessor unhappy in himself and disagreeable to all who are so unhappy as to be witnesses of it, or suffer from its effects. You, my dear son, are formed with a constitution feelingly alive. Your passions are strong and impetuous, and, though I have sometimes seen them hurry you into excesses, yet with pleasure I have observed a frankness and generosity accompany your efforts to govern and subdue them. Few persons are so subject to passion, but that they can command themselves when they have a motive sufficiently strong. And those who are most apt to transgress will restrain themselves through respect and reverence to superiors, and even where they wish to recommend themselves to their equals. The due government of the passions 
has been considered in all ages as a most valuable acquisition. Hence, an inspired writer observes, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. This passion, cooperating with power and unrestrained by reason, has produced the subversion of cities, the desolation of countries, the massacre of nations, and filled the world with injustice and oppression. Behold your own country, your native land, suffering from the effects of lawless power and malignant passions, and learn betimes from your own observation and experience to govern and control yourself. Having once obtained this self-government, you will find a foundation laid for happiness to yourself and usefulness to mankind. Virtue alone is happiness below, and consists in cultivating and improving every good inclination, and in checking and subduing every propensity to evil. I have been particular upon the passion of anger, as it is generally the most predominant passion at your age, the soonest excited, and the least pains are taken to subdue it. What composes man can man destroy. I do not mean, however, to have you insensible to real injuries. He who will not turn when he is trodden upon is deficient in point of spirit. Yet, if you can preserve good breeding and decency of manners, you will have an advantage over the aggressor and will maintain a dignity of character which will always ensure you respect even from the offender. I will not overburden your mind at this time. I mean to pursue the subject of self-knowledge in some future letter and give you my sentiments upon your future conduct in life when I feel disposed to resume my pen. In the meantime, be assured, no one is more sincerely interested in your happiness than your ever-affectionate mother, A. A. Do not expose my letters. I would copy, but hate it. Sunday evening, 16 July, 1780. To John Adams. My dearest friend, I had just returned to my chamber and taken up my pen to congratulate you upon the arrival of the fleet of our allies at Newport, when I was called down to receive the most agreeable of presents, letters from my dearest friend. One bearing date March 28th by Mr. Izzard, and one of May 3rd taken out of the post office. But to what port they arrived first I know not. They could not be those by the fleet, as in these you make mention of letters which I have not yet received, nor by the Alliance, since Mr. Williams sailed twenty-five days after the fleet, and she was then in France. A pity, I think, that she should stay there when here we are almost destitute. Our Navy has been unfortunate indeed. I am sorry to find that only a few lines have reached you from me. I have written by way of Spain, Holland, and Sweden, but not one single direct conveyance have I had to France since you left me. I determined to open a communication by way of Gardoki, and wish you would make use of the same conveyance. What shall I say of our political affairs? Shall I exclaim at measures now impossible to remedy? No. 
I will hope all from the generous aid of our allies, in concert with our own exertions. I am not suddenly elated or depressed. I know America capable of anything she undertakes with spirit and vigor. Brave in distress, serene in conquest, drowsy when at rest, is her true characteristic. Yet I deprecate a failure in our present effort. The efforts are great, and we give this campaign more than half our property to defend the other. He who tarries from the field cannot possibly earn sufficient at home to reward him who takes it. Yet, should heaven bless our endeavors and crown this year with the blessings of peace, no exertion will be thought too great, no price of property too dear. My whole soul is absorbed in the idea. The honor of my dearest friend, the welfare and happiness of this wide extended country, ages yet unborn, depend for their happiness and security upon the able and skillful, the honest and upright discharge of the important trust committed to him. It would not become me to write the full flow of my heart upon this occasion. My constant petition for him is that he may so discharge the trust reposed in him as to merit the approving eye of heaven and peace, liberty, and safety crown his latest years in his own native land. The Marchioness at the Abbe Reynal is not the only lady who joins an approving voice to that of her country, though at the expense of her present domestic happiness. It is easier to admire virtue than to practice it, especially the great virtue of self-denial. I find but few sympathizing souls. Why should I look for them, since few have any souls but of the sensitive kind? that nearest allied to my own they have taken from me, and tell me honor and fame are a compensation. Fame, wealth, or honor, what are ye to love? But hushed be my pen, let me cast my eye upon the letters before me. What is the example? I follow it in silence. Present my compliments to Mr. Dana, Tell him I have called upon his lady, and we enjoyed an afternoon of sweet communion. I find she would not be adverse to taking a voyage, should he be continued abroad. She groans most bitterly, and is irreconcilable to his absence. I am a mere philosopher to her. I am inured, but not hardened, to the painful portion. Shall I live to see it otherwise? Your letters are always valuable to me, but more particularly so when they close with an affectionate assurance of regard, which, though I do not doubt, is never repeated without exciting the tenderest sentiments, and never omitted without pain to the affectionate bosom of your Portia. 15 October, 1780 To John Adams, my dearest friend, I closed a long letter to you only two days ago, but as no opportunity is omitted by me, I embrace this, as Colonel Fleury was kind enough to write me on purpose from Newport to inform me of it and to promise a careful attention to it. Yet I feel doubtful of its safety. The enemy seems to be collecting a prodigious force into these seas and is bent upon the destruction of our allies. 
we are not a little anxious for them, and cannot but wonder that they are not yet reinforced. Graves' fleet, Arbuthnose, and Rodney's all here, with such a superiority, can it be a matter of surprise if Monsieur de Ternay should fall a sacrifice? My own mind, I own, is full of apprehension, yet I trust we shall not be delivered over to the vengeance of a nation more wicked and perverse than our own. We daily experience the correcting and the defending arm. The enclosed papers will give you the particulars of an infernal plot and the providential discovery of it. For, however the belief of a particular providence may be exploded by the modern wits, and the infidelity of too many of the rising generation deride the idea, yet the virtuous mind will look up and acknowledge the great first cause, without whose notice not even a sparrow falls to the ground. I am anxious to hear from you. Your last letter, which I have received, was dated June the 17th. I have written you repeatedly that my trunk was not put on board the Alliance. That poor vessel was the sport of more than winds and waves. The conduct with regard to her is considered as very extraordinary. She came to Boston, as you have no doubt heard. Land day is suspended. The man must be new made before he can be entitled to command. I hope Captain Sampson arrived safe. He carried the resolve of Congress which you wanted. You tell me to send you prices current. I will aim at it. Corn is now thirty pounds, rye twenty-seven per bushel, flour from a hundred and forty to a hundred and thirty per hundred, beef eight dollars per pound, mutton nine, lamb six, seven and eight, butter twelve dollars per pound, cheese ten, sheep's wool thirty dollars per pound, flax twenty, West India articles, sugar, from a hundred and seventy to two hundred pounds per hundred, molasses, forty-eight dollars per gallon, tea, ninety, coffee, twelve, cotton wool, thirty per pound, exchange from seventy to seventy-five for hard money, bills at fifty, money scarce, plenty of goods, enormous taxes. Our state affairs are thus. Hancock will be governor by a very great majority. The Senate will have to choose the lieutenant governor. Our Constitution is read with great admiration in New York, and pronounced by the royal governor the best Republican form he ever saw, but with sincere hopes that it might not be accepted. How will it be administered is now the important question. The report of the day is that three thousand troops are arrived at new york from england adieu most affectionately yours twenty eighth january seventeen eighty one to john adams my dearest friend last evening general lincoln called here introducing to me a gentleman by the name of colonel lawrence the son as i suppose of your much esteemed friend the late president of congress who informed me that he expected to sail for France in a few days, and would take dispatches from me. Although I closed letters to you by way of Holland a few days ago, I would not omit so good an opportunity as the present. 
"'Tis a long time since the date of your last letters, the 25th of September. I wait with much anxiety, listening to the sound of every gun, but none announce the arrival of the fame from Holland, which we greatly fear is taken or lost, or the Mars from France. Colonel Lawrence is enabled, I suppose, to give you every kind of intelligence respecting the army, which you may wish to learn." I have the pleasure to inform you that a repeal of the obnoxious tender act has passed the House and Senate. The governor, as has been heretofore predicted, when anything not quite popular is in agitation, has the gout and is confined to his bed. A false weight and a false balance are an abomination, and in that light this tender act must be viewed by every impartial person." Who but an idiot would believe that forty were equal to seventy-five? But the repeal gives us reason to hope that justice and righteousness will again exalt our nation, that public faith will be restored, that individuals will lend to the public, and that the heavy taxes which now distress all orders will be lessened. A late committee, who have been sitting upon ways and means for raising money, tell us that a tax for two years more, equal to what we have paid in the last, would clear this state of debt. You may judge of the weight of them, yet our state taxes are but as a grain of mustard seed when compared with our town taxes. Clinton, I hear, has sent out a proclamation upon Germain's plan, inviting the people to make a separate peace, which will only be a new proof of the ignorance and folly of our enemies, without making a single proselyte. Even the revolted Pennsylvania troops gave up to justice the spies whom Clinton sent to them, offering them clothing and pay, letting him know that it was justice from their state, not favors from their enemies, which they wanted. It is reported that Arnold, with a body of troops, is gone to Virginia, where it is hoped he and his myrmidons will meet their fate. Had Clinton been a generous enemy, or known human nature, he would, like Aurelian, upon a like occasion, have given up the traitor to the hands of justice, knowing that it was in vain to expect fidelity in a man who had betrayed his own country, which, from his defection, may learn to place a higher value upon integrity and virtue than upon a savage ferocity so often mistaken for courage." He who, as an individual, is cruel, unjust, and immoral, will not be likely to possess the virtues necessary in a general or statesman. Yet in our infant country, infidelity and debauchery are so fashionably prevalent that less attention is paid to the characters of those who fill important offices than a love of virtue and zeal for public liberty can warrant which we are told by wise legislators of old, are the surest preservatives of public happiness. You observe in a late letter that your absence from your native state will deprive you of an opportunity of being a man of importance in it. I hope you are doing your country more extensive service abroad than you could have done had you been confined to one state only and whilst you continue in the same estimation among your fellow-citizens in which you are now held, you will not fail of being of importance to them at home 
or abroad. Heaven preserve the life and health of my dear absent friend, and, in its own time, return him to his country and to the arms of his ever-affectionate Portia. End of section 15